Hi, this is Joanne, and this is Sit in the Attendees Chair, uh, a podcast on the meetings and events industry. Glad you could join us today. Um, today, we will be talking about risk. Part two, we had a part one, which was an overview with Linda Robson and a lot of other guests, but Linda being our super duper expert on it. And uh, this time we thought we'd delve into more specifics concerning risk identification and risk assessment. So let's uh, find out everyone who's here right now. Um, you wanna you want to start? Steve the Great is here. <laughs> Steve the Great. Um, for those of you who don't, never mind. We'll just let that go. Kelly. <laughs> Hi, happy to be here again. And uh, Kelly works on our team and um, does a great job and is the one that actually gets these up and somewhere where people can find them again, which is nice. Tracy? Hi, Tracy Bear. I'm an independent consultant, or, um, yes, consultant, and uh, I'm a CMP and a CFMP, which is a certified faith-based meeting planner. Uh, I work with nonprofits and associations, and I'm currently working with a megachurch outside of Chicago. Yeah, boy, the stories I hear about this, like, so how many people do you have for Easter? Oh, 9,000. You know, it's like, okay. <laughs> yep. Gives you a whole different perspective. And the other day she gave me a whole big education on food trucks, which was very valuable to me too. Never know what you're going to have a conversation about. And again, once again, our expert on uh, risk, Linda Robson. Uh, Linda, why don't you tell people a little bit about you in case they're listening to these out of order? Okay. I, my name is Linda Robson. I'm a professor at Endicott College. I was an international conference planner for about 15 years. And then I went back to school to get a bunch of letters after my name and decided to stand on the other side of the desk. Uh, in the process of getting the letters after my name, I fell in love with the whole risk management process and realized I had been doing it without knowing for a bunch of years. And so that's where the book that we're talking about and risk management, I've spent probably 20 to 30 years of my life now looking at variety of ways of risk management. I've done a bunch of speaking on it. I teach a class. Um, yeah, I just can't get away from it. And I love it. Well, and, you know, we talked about on part one of this, the whole idea that, you know, 9-11 definitely had, you know, made everyone in this industry start thinking about risk differently. And I think some of the younger people, and I don't mean that as an insult, may not realize how much that just changed so many things that we do in general in the world, but especially in meetings and events. Um, and you made so many good points about that last time that sometimes people get super focused on that when they're talking risk, you know, bombings of buildings and active shooters. active shooters and things that are actually relatively uncommon in the scheme of things and don't really zero in on the things that really pretty much happen at every meeting or could happen at every meeting and go I, ahead if you want well, to add. It's just i mean it that was one of the things as you mentioned september 11th was really kind of the official, I guess, starting point of my risk management journey, um, because I was a planner at the time and was being told I needed to do risk management, but there was nothing out there. So that was when I put on my geek hat and started to wander down the idea of research. Because I, I mean, 
give me something to research and I'm a happy camper all the time. Um, but what I really realized during the beginning of that journey is that there is so much focus on things like we just had it here in Boston, the marathon bombings, mm -hmm. the, the 10 years ago that it happened. So it was the anniversary. Um, and there was a lot of stuff that was brought up about that. Um, and when these, we call them low con or no high, high consequence, low probability. And that's, we'll talk a little bit about it today with the idea of assessment is, you know, these high consequence, low probability is what we're focusing on. And not that it's not important, but for me, a couple of things come up with that in that first and foremost, as event professionals, we are not doing anything with those. We're talking about um, first responders. They're the ones that take over because they are so much more prepared than we are. Um, and then on top of that, quite often we lose our space because it becomes where they bring in um, shelters and where people will go into hotel spaces. So focusing on that really does a disservice in the industry. It doesn't prepare us for things like if somebody has a bee sting and needs an EpiPen or a cut, you know, trips and falls, the things that, that we deal with on a more regular basis. Yeah, and I, I just think that's so true. Uh, um, I've been in conversations as morbid as it sounds where we were all sitting at a table over a meal <laughs> talking about i mean i'm sorry if, if this is appalls people but people dying at meetings and events i yeah, know we, we talked to a road scholar and people died overseas uh, and they were generally more mature people yeah so. the average age of their uh, attendees are 75 and older but it can happen i mean i've known people who have have had to deal with the death at a meeting or event of all different kinds of people and ages and reasons um, and so, yeah, I, I hear you that we have to think about, and of course, nobody thinks anyone's going to die at their meeting or event. Um, I mean, you just don't, um, maybe because you don't want to, but still needing and especially, yeah, out of the country and things like that, that gets super complicated. Um, and probably something to be talked about for, you know, identification and assessment if you're doing an international, you know, even if you're having in the U.S., you may have an international attendee, and it does get complicated. Uh, I do know that from talking to people. So, um, go ahead. No, no it, it can, can get complicated. I, so I, when I was planning events, I was based in Canada. Um, and ironically, we only had in the, like, 15 years that I planned events professionally, we only had two of them in Canada. Neither were in the province that I lived in. Everything else was international, and international included to be here in the U.S. too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just one more layer of, of things to think about. So, um, so first of all, uh, Linda did reference her book, and we will have the link in the um, the information about the podcast. So definitely, it's one of the things I mentioned last. It's, Last time we recorded, I know Tracy said the same thing. Really easy read, and that's not to mean that it is not jammed full of content and usable content. But you can read it in an hour, hour and a half, and it's interesting, and it's not boring. And, uh, you know, so we would highly recommend it's a downloadable book, Um so definitely go investigate it on the link. It's definitely something you should have 
uh, handy to, to rethink what you're doing uh, with this issue. So um, let's talk about identification. So I know at the beginning of the chapter, you talk about, you know, brainstorming is one of the best ways and you go through the basics of brainstorming and how to get things um, going. Uh, but I also love the list that you had, you know, of, I don't even know, there's at least 25 different things that people might not think about um, starting. And I have to admit, this was not one that would have been top of my list. Theft personal items out of the meeting room out of the guest rooms design idea nope that would not have been like high up on my brainstorming list probably should be probably i'm the one who leaves my purse under this you know six foot table that's draped um so yeah probably should um but uh you know tell us what we should think about um you know how how why what is identifying risk so again i one of the things that was common across the research that I found when I was looking at how to do a risk management process was this idea of, a, you know, we'll identify the risks and then assess them. And I could not find anything other than the reference of, yeah, just identify them. I was like, well, what do I do? Pick them out of the air? Like, I don't give me some guidance on that even. Um, and, one of the things that struck me was that a lot of risk management, um, and there's a book, oh my goodness, I've just completely blanked on her name. Oh, Julia Rutherford, Julia Rutherford Silvers. Um, she was one of the first people that wrote a book on risk management. Um, and I've read her book, and she was one of the first people in our industry that, that really started to look at risk management. Um, and she mentions this idea of identification as well, but there's really nothing like solid about how to do it. Um, and one of the things that she and Peter Tarlow, who is another early uh, person to, to talk about risk management, they focus a lot on using your experience, which is not great if it's the first time you've ever done a different kind of event or if you're new to the industry you really don't have experience so i just felt that i needed to really solidify what i meant by identifying risks um, and so that's where the idea of brainstorming and mind mapping came from mm -hmm. um, and it just i've used it several times um, and it it does really help just kind of get the the risk management frame of mind flowing. Um, yeah, so the key pieces with brainstorming is, you know, the there's rules for brainstorming, and the rules are that there are no rules. Um, <laughs> and it's interesting when I've done this exercise, both when I speak and when I do it with my students, it's interesting how difficult brainstorming is for people to do. Yes. I find it, like, fascinating that we are now living in a society where we're afraid to just be silly mm -hmm. or we're afraid to just say things because people might think that we're dumb or uh, we're, like the people are judging us. And so this whole idea of brainstorming and just, I also call it uh, a brain dump or word vomit. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it, like, it's so important that you take your ego and you take your, your judgment um, yes it just like just start spewing words mm -hmm. um, and it's so important to be able to do that in order to be have it be effective 
Yeah, and I know you said, you know, no extended explanations. And I know when I facilitated brainstorming, that's always one too. Because, well, you know what I mean, but nope. Nope, we're just moving on here, people, you know, and I'm sure all of us have been in some kind of session where we had to do that. But it's even hard when you know the rules sometimes, you know, it's like, ah, okay, nope, that was it. Yeah, it's it's interesting when I do it with students, especially because they already feel like they don't have a lot to contribute. Mm -hmm. And and they, you know, they've been going through the the school system, the educational system there's a lot of emphasis on them explaining or that there's a right answer. Yes. And so that's one of the things that I, that I face on a regular basis when I'm teaching is that no, no, there's 20 of us in the room. There's 20 ways to do this. Yep. Right. And not one that's the right way. It's finding your way to do it and being able to explain it, which is really the, the core piece behind the book too is there's more than one way to do risk management. That's why I call it a process versus risk management. Like a, this is what you have to do um, because the, the key is being able to defend it. But, and if you know it and you feel it well enough, you can defend it again, going around the idea, there isn't a right answer. And yes, I'm, I'm right with you because anyone who sat through my CMP classes and everything I talk about, we are not taught to think in the schools. And and yep. and that they struggle when it comes to the concepts around the CMP because it's a very conceptual, situational thing, and it, because real life is conceptual and situational, yep. you know, and that's why twenty different things could work. Um, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think I think to to respectfully disagree with you that they're okay. that they're taught to think in a in a very specific way. A very myopic way. Okay. What yep. is taken away from them is curiosity. Yep. Yep. Curiosity, options, the the fact that yeah. it could be bigger than one path. Yep. 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 Imagination. Yep. Like those are the places where I struggle where I'm teaching is to get them to imagine something other than. And that's you really need to do that with risk management or else you're not going to be as inclusive as you can. Mm-hmm. Because everyone's coming with different experiences, so they can contribute. <laughs> Did you want to say something, Steve? Sounded like you were getting ready to say something. Oh, I was going to go back to theft. Okay, uh, okay. <laughs> way back. I got stuck on this because when I, I worked at one of the universities, you know, they had lots of things going on for students. All students have backpacks nowadays. They would drop them outside in the hallway, and sure enough, it was driving our uh, police security crazy because you know 10 20 backpack thefts a day that along with bicycles but uh, they eventually uh, found a way to drop to provide a room a locked room you drop them in here instead of out in the hall there would literally be a hundred backpacks just waiting to be picked up so yeah and of course now we all worry well especially around the boston area backpacks mean something but that's been true you know tsa we go through the airports and everything um another one you know looking at maybe it's the last one on your list uh vendor no-shows wouldn't have thought of putting that in risk but boy yeah linens rental lighting av it's like yeah so what happens but i wouldn't have thought of that as risk but you're right. That's the kind of stuff that can turn your meeting upside down. Well, I think that one is is something that we don't often think about because um, 
like someone like yourself, Joanne or Tracy, you probably have this experience as well. Is that with supplier partners, you de- you've developed a relationship with them. Mm-hmm. So if something had happened that that person couldn't come, what normally happens if you if you've been part of associations and you you've done your time and built these relationships is if your linen supplier something happens and they can't get there, they will have figured out some way to cover you. That the idea of a vendor no show really comes in when you're using people who are not part of the industry, right? So, or haven't developed these relationships or haven't like, there's a variety of things that could happen that even with a a reliable supplier partner, there could be a traffic accident accident. There could be, there could have been a fire in their warehouse. Like there's so many things that could happen to them that there's no way that they there's no way that they can do anything else so it's just a matter of thinking about that good point tracy you look like you've got thoughts running you were talking about a fire uh we had a supplier that had a flood they were in tennessee where they had a huge amount of rain and their warehouse flooded so all of the t-shirts and um things that we were going to be using in our store bags and you know all that were flooded until they got trashed i mean they couldn't wash them and use them again so for our event that whole chunk of uh, merchandise was was gone yep so all the were you giving it out or selling it we were going to sell that that particular uh, stuff in the store uh, was you know going to be for sale so so that's revenue lost conference shirts but we lost yeah a huge amount of income that time wow Well, one thing I noticed on there, on her list, was uh, poor customer service. And in today's world, with the shortage of the hospitality workers, oh my! Yeah, yeah, and it's not even poor. It's just there's nobody there to not do existent. it. You know, yeah. poor makes it sound like they're not trying or don't care. And instead, yeah, there was an article in one of the industry things this week, and part of you probably already saw it, where they were talking about they had done a poll and. And uh, planner's biggest frustration right now is that prices have increased so much, but the level of service they're getting in the venues is so much lower because they're so short-staffed. And so they're getting frustrated because they're paying more and getting less. But I think we've all been looking at all sides of that story that, you know the pay and well you just mentioned or we we have talked about the olympics in la and what with the 25 dollars an hour now right yeah uh, if it's not it's shortly yeah. you all probably saw that too that hourly workers in the hospitality industry in la won the other day to go to i think it's 25 dollars by the end of this year and 28 over the next three and one of their arguments was and i kind of got it that they've got the olympics next year and they've got, they've got two major events. Now I forget what the other one was, like in the next three years, both world events. And they said, if you want to offer world-class service to the world, you're going to have to take care of people, you know, who, who are going to be the ones providing it. And they talked about the fact, you know, none of their workers can live in L.A. It's too expensive. So they need the additional money to be able to commute. And, you know. I mean, yeah. I think a benefit don't get me wrong, COVID was terrible. Yep. But I think one of the things that we're seeing from it is that with the lack of employees still in the event and hospitality industries, 
you're seeing that they're now starting to get paid a living wage, which I think is a, is a positive from it. Uh, but when I was talking about poor customer service, you could end up, like, you could have employees that are providing poor in- customer service. But I was thinking more along the lines of, in events, we rely so heavily on volunteers. Mm-hmm. And those volunteers are not necessarily part of an events industry. So they may not know what to do. They may not care. And we get volunteers. And, and I'm sure that anybody who has worked an event has experienced volunteers not showing up or not doing what they were supposed to do because it's a volunteer. I'm volunteering. Like, you're lucky I'm here. That's the the, the yeah, attitude you get for some. You just hit a major button with Tracy because her blog a couple of weeks ago. Tell, her, tell us about your blog post about volunteer. And then, of course, you've just finished writing a book on volunteers, too, because she... Her events live and die by volunteers. So most of, most events do live and die by volunteers. We can't afford to pay all the staff we need. Yeah, well, and especially in a faith-based organization, you yeah. know it. So it, tell them what happened. Tell Linda what you wrote about in your blog a couple of weeks ago. So it's you're right. Volunteers are, a, uh, <clears throat> volunteers are volunteers are risk. <laughs> yes, let's define helpful. So we had an event. Uh, outside in Illinois, you know, and it was in the summertime. We happen to have three of the most beautiful days in the world. That never happens, but we're setting up for this outside event. We're going to have a concert in a tulip field. And you knew what you were getting into when you're signing up to, to serve. You're going to be outside. You're going to be in a field. It's going to be warm. Okay. So we had this gal sign up, and she came out to help us in the food tent. And she's like, oh, no, no, no. I didn't, I didn't sign up for that. No, I'm, I'm just going to sit here. And she just sat and sat uh, with the people and visited when they came in to have dinner. Like, no, no, you're supposed to like bust the tables and help, you know, serve some food and hand out water and, you know, chat with them, make, you know, sure they have what they need. She was like, I'm not here to work. No, I'm a volunteer. You are, <laughs> you, you are. You signed up for that. We didn't force you into it. It's not like a work program. You're not doing you know, community service hours or anything. You, you signed up to serve here. That's the whole point of what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. No, she's not helpful at all. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I mean, that event that I did, that children's event, was staffed by high school students doing their community service hours. So it was uh, like I had no idea whether or not they were going to show up, what kind of what kind of um, commitment they were going to show, right? Like, yeah. So I was prepared for all of that as well. That's interesting, though. Volunteers are a risk. So if an yeah. organization is using volunteers, yep, they, you know, and it could even be like I'm thinking even with corporate where they're paid they may have been dictated or said oh i'll come help you out kind of like an unofficial volunteer position because they're actually on payroll but it's not their duties as a sign type thing and yeah then they go wander off and do something else well i wanted to see that session well so did i but that's that's not my responsibility today so um risk volunteers is a risk that's a real interesting concept that i wouldn't have thought of i guess Overall, I've probably been very fortunate in my life with volunteers when I read Tracy's um, thing. Um, Yeah, I have as well. I mean, I've been very lucky with volunteers, mostly because when when I'm 
the lead for anything, I typically make my expectations clear in terms of, you know, I know this is a volunteer position. I get that you are paid to do other things and that you have other things in your life. And if you can't do something, all you need to do is tell me, right? And we'll Mm -hmm. pick up the slack. Um, If you, if I get sideswiped by something, I'm not going to be happy. And by extension, neither are you. (laughs) Yeah. So it's, you know, it's just setting those expectations where it's, for me, it's a pet peeve about volunteers. It's like, well, I'm just volunteering for this. Yes, but you committed to it, and yeah. other people are relying, relying on you. you. Yeah, right. Regardless of whether or not I'm paying you, you said you would do this. It's your word. Suck it up, Buttercup, and get it done. Yeah, or let me know you can't. Yeah, it's your word. Yeah. you made a commitment, and it doesn't yes. matter if you're paid or you're not paid. You made, you know, you should be true to your word. And like you said, yes. if something comes up and you really can't do it, not you don't want to do it. You, you yeah, and it does. It yeah. does. There's all kinds of reasons that you might have to back out. What do you think yeah. are other ones on this list, both Tracy and uh, um, Linda, that people like you have some of the standards equipment fi- failure, fire, terrorism, which we've already talked about some. Yeah. We talked about intoxication on the first one a lot. What do you think's on here that you want people to go, oh, yeah you know, didn't think of that or wouldn't have thought of that. You know, like I said, I wouldn't have put vendor no-shows on here just because I don't know where I would have put it, but it I can totally <laughs> see why it's why it's on here. What are some other ones that you see on here that are kind of like, yeah, make sure you think of this? Well, things like, like you were talking about with theft. Um, you know, most people do. It, it, it's, again, that like we were talking about last time, that assumption that the space is safe and secure. And so people will leave their stuff in a room, right? And just walk out. Um, And so, you know, the idea of understanding what other people's perceptions are, that's one. But for me, one of the things that when I started to do this brainstorming and and looking at it, intellectual property theft. Mm. Right. So not just theft of physical things, but theft of ideas as well. You know, that was one to me that was like, oh, right. You know, and the other one that kind of that was was something that I thought of because of the events I started to do were um, labor strikes or strikes of any kind. Right. Because I did a lot of my well, I did most of my events in Europe and they're very polite about it. But during the summer, they quite often have transportation strikes where they shut down. They'll give you 24 to 48 hours notice, but nothing's moving. No planes, trains, nothing. Really? Um, yeah. And like I said, it's, it's very civilized, but it happens. <laughs> right? So things like that. And I know here in the U.S., a lot of the hotels, the um, unions for the hotel workers have a contracts their contracts they belong to one union Mm -hmm. so that they have more bargaining power so that if one hotel's um staff is is their contract is coming up but another one's isn't they don't have as much bargaining power but i know here in the u.s they can shut down the hotel industry if uh, when their contracts are are coming up to be renegotiated so thinking about things like that as well and there are people that won't cross um won't cross a strike 
And that's one of the things I point out to people at, at various times, too, is you have to know if your attendees are willing to cross those strike lines. And a lot of times they're not because they are affiliated with a, maybe a different union, but union people don't usually cross union lines, even if it's not their union. Um, right. And plus, it could, even if they're not union, if a section of their corporation, for example, is union and they cross the strike lines, it could be perceived very badly within their own organization. So, yep. yeah. I, and it, then I, it's like down the rabbit hole as well. You've got people, I, and I'm not sure that I would want, like if a hotel, if a hotel employees were on strike, I'm not sure I would want to cross. Even being with or without being on a union, I don't know that I would want to cross. And then the second part of that for me as a, an event professional is, who have they got now? Like, I'm, I'm going to end up with a lower level of service because they just don't have well-trained people or they're bringing people in last minute or not having enough. So it's all of those pieces that you have to think about. Absolutely. And even if you've thought about some of those, so going back to theft, um, at our uh, big event um, where we had the trade show floor and a store, um, we made sure we rekeyed our office and everybody had a key and that was locked all the time. Our AV room was locked and rekeyed. Where our merchandise was, we made sure it was locked. We had a security standing around with the store. We had overnight security with the, you know, the um, trade show floor. But we didn't think about the really expensive camera video recording the speaker in the breakout room. Oh, yeah. We left those there. Got stolen. Oh. It didn't even cross our mind that one year. And we've been doing the same event in the same venue for years. The one year we did, we just they just stole it overnight right out of the room. Out of like, the breakout okay, well, rooms. Yeah. It was yeah. the one thing we didn't think about. Well, you would kind of assume... And I know, yes, I'm well aware of Assume, but that the hotel would have the room locked and that they would, if it was mm -hmm. locked, that only the right people would have entrance to it. Yep. Obviously not. But you used to have all that stuff rekeyed every time you went into a venue? Yeah. I've never heard of anyone doing that. That's actually brilliant. We were the only ones that had access. Oh. Even that we had to be around in order for them to come in and clean. Oh. Wow. That's, I mean, like you said, you, you've been doing the same event for, that's one of the biggest risks that I can identify as well is when you've done a, an event repeatedly, it's not that, they're just things that you tend to get lackadaisical about. And it's not that you don't care. It's that it, this is, it's something that has never happened. Right. And so you just you just don't think about it. And then it happens and it's like, oh, my God. Right. Yeah. Like, why didn't course. I ever think of that? Like, yeah, of course. Yeah. Right. And that's that's where a lot of, you know, talking about it last time, that's where a lot of problems come up with risk management and and the perception of the industry is because people look at it after it's happened and they're like, well, why did you think of that? Would you have? Right, like you thought about all these other things, right? It's it, why would that be something that I would think of? And so, yeah, that's. I mean, that's the biggest challenge that as professionals we face is trying to explain to people that here's all of the stuff we thought about. Yes, I missed that one, and if I'm being honest, of course it seems logical that I would have. But here's my list <laughs> of everything my 20 pages list of everything that I did think of. <laughs> right. 
Yeah. And the one that's not on your list, but it's the pages before, is that personal risk perception. They're the people that are that would freeze in a in a yeah. crisis or somebody who's got um, an uh, issue with like ADHD or they're sensitive to the lights and the sound. Right. Those kinds of things never even crossed my mind. The yeah. narrow, what we're now very rapidly talking about with neurodiversity and everything. And Linda, I know in the first one, you did talk about that. Like, okay, flight, fright, what's it, freeze? Did I get it? Fright, no. flight, fight, flight, or freeze. There we go. There we go. Yeah, that was yeah. a opening for me. Yeah, it, it was too. When you said, like, there's some people that will freeze and you're wondering, excuse my language, what the hell are you doing? Move. Yeah. But, but you know, it wasn't until can't. you said that yeah. that I realized some people could literally freeze to the point that they could not act. Yeah. And yes, that, and, and like I said, the last episode I talked about that seeing that bloody snake come at me. Yep. Um, wrapped around somebody's shoulders. Now, obviously, just for those who didn't hear the first one, um, <laughs> it's not like a snake, a snake jumped out of the trees at me. Somebody was walking God up forbid. the street. <laughs> oh God, that, I would never leave my house again. Um, but somebody was walking towards me with one of those boa constrictors, um, carrying it around their their neck, and on my snake snake phobia, I could not move. Like every and in my head is screaming, move, 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 but I physically could not move, and it it terrifying. Right, because you're trying to move, but you can't. And the only thing in that situation, the only thing you could have done is put hands on me and move me, because I don't have the capacity to make that to to actually do it myself. I bet that happens to a lot of people when there's a fire. I was just going to say there is a huge risk if somebody's afraid of a fire and they're standing there. Yeah. Hello, there's a fire coming. Yes. Get out of the way. You need to move. Panic attacks. Right. Any yep. kind of anything like that. It's there's I mean, I know we live in a world where it's very litigious and you don't want to do this out of the other thing. But there one of the things that I talk to the students about is there may come a time where you have to put hands on. You cannot logic people when they're in a panic situation or when yep. they're in a freeze situation. And I'm not saying like slap them, but take them by the arm, like physically move, move them. them. Because that's all you can do at that point. And once they get going, I'm guessing that will help, too. It, 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 to a certain extent, it might move them into a different realm. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. Um, but it's, I mean, worst case scenario, you've got somebody by the arm and you're dragging them out. And at least then they're safe. Hmm. Were you going to say something, Steve? Sound like you wanted to On a whole nother but I, I noticed uh, that Linda, you had some uh, what I would call cultural issues on there, like uh, religious and maybe even food preferences. But I was also wondering about uh, other societal things. And with your international background, I know uh, some countries in Europe take a month-long vacation. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay, so you you need to be aware of those societal things because I worked with yes. somebody overseas in. in past career and they said oh yeah uh, we take the whole month of july off i said well you know we're in the middle of a project here <laughs> it's coming to the end and you're telling me they're going to take a month off and they went oh yeah everybody does yeah so. well and i've heard of meeting planners getting caught in that 
that they did yep. not know that they got great hotel rates and everything like that because <laughs> nobody's going to be there <laughs> right and then they got there and like everything's closed you know all the restaurants the museums the everything so they've gone to whatever country usually it's somewhere in europe and they think wow we you know and then they get over there and everything you went to europe to do is closed so it's probably a really safe bet that if you're getting this astronomical deal you should question it (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i mean i dealt with that um to your point steve i dealt with that a lot when i did the international event something as simple as culturally here in north america we quite often have working lunches right Mm -hmm. how often do you see somebody sitting at their desk eating lunch um, or you'll go to a conference and there'll be a speaker at lunch. If you do that for Europeans, the room will be empty. Uh, and I can tell you that from personal experience because my um, Canadian boss wanted to have a speaker for a lunch once and all of the Europeans left the room. There were probably about five people left in the room because meals are not for working. Right. I I was in a car with somebody from France once and we were running behind and I said, well, we'll just, uh, you know, go through the uh, drive through and get something. He says, you eat in your car. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I said, well, yeah, (laughs) this is what we do. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Totally surprised. I mean, the structure of the events that I Mm. planned, you had to have 90 minutes for lunch because people wouldn't come back in, in an hour. It was too, and you could not have any programming during the breaks or during lunch and you had to be done by six o'clock so they could have dinner (laughs) right like it's and you don't work when when there's food in front of you you're not working and we could all learn from that it it is a shock but you know it's you know i had a round with someone recently and i'm like no you cannot have the speaker while people are actually eating i don't really like it during lunch but you have to at least wait Till everyone has eaten and either leave the dishes or make sure they're cleared. But I said, speaking from both sides of it, as a speaker, I said, you cannot understand how hard it is to present when people are eating a meal. It is extremely tough because they're talking to each other about their food. They're, They're not deliberately being disrespectful. It's like they're there to eat and... I said, you have to. Well, we don't have time. I'm like, it's not fair to your speaker and it's not fair to your attendees. So figure it out. And I think that's something really important that we do. But yeah, I'm thinking about when I taught over in Thailand. And, you know, I'm used to a schedule when I teach eight hours or something of, of whatever I'm teaching, you know, four hours somewhere in there, we have a break, you know, have an hour lunch, go back four hours. Oh, no, 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 no. So I was like constantly trying to figure out what I could edit out without losing the content they needed because we were short of time because so much more was being taken with breaks and meals than I expected. And my bad for not asking for probably a more detailed schedule ahead of time. That's, I mean, again, when you're looking at events, the risk is not prepping the speaker. Right. Like yeah. not. Pre- there's been numerous times I had an experience, Joanne, where I was speaking and they didn't tell me it was over lunch. Yeah. That they were going to be actually serving lunch. Um, and it was like, OK, um, fortunately, I ha- do this for a living now. Like I talk for a living so I could adjust it. But one of yeah. the things that I I mean, I almost walked into one of the employees carrying the the tray of dishes 
because I was I move around the room when I lecture. Same here. Yep. I move around the room when I speak, and I almost I almost backed into somebody. So you know, it's it's all of those things that you're not. Yeah, if you're not prepared, I mean, I stand up in front of a group of students, and sometimes none of them are listening. So people not paying attention to me isn't going to throw me off. Right. Um, but if you've got a speaker that isn't used to that or hasn't been prepared for that to happen, it's going to affect their presentation. And, you know, I think it's a good place to put in, you know, for risk. Talk to your speakers. Don't assume yes. anything because their experiences and, and their requests and you don't want an unhappy speaker when they get there and find this out. Mm-hmm. Most speakers will adjust, but every speaker who comes wants to present at their best. And so either you all need to come to an agreement as to what that environment is going to be, or at least give them a chance to readjust preferably before they walk in the room. Um, So, yeah, I think one of the, one of the things that we don't necessarily do well as event professionals is being control of the content. So that's Mm -hmm. not to say telling the speaker what to say, but giving strong parameters of what you want and what you expect and really making sure that the speaker has been vetted and Mm -hmm. make sure that the speaker understands the environment. Something as simple as uh, the first time I spoke, I went in and I had a dress on and nobody told me that I needed to have a waistband so that they could mic me. Oh, yeah, that's a classic one for women. Yep. So Mm -hmm. what happens is it's now on my bra. Yep, exactly. Been there, I'm done that one. the back of my dress so you can put it on my my bra. It's you know something as simple as that is having somebody prepared. If you need, if like a wireless mic, no problem. But if you if you give me a handheld mic, I'm the worst with those. Yeah, because so, your hands out here, right? <laughs> well, yeah. That's I mean, you're watching me as it, as we're talking to each other on this, so we can see each other, and you can see me moving my hand. Yep. Right. If I've got a mic in my hand, you. I'm yelling and then you can't hear me at all. And yep. It's like it's I and it doesn't matter how much you train me. I'm better off. I can be loud enough, thankfully, um, that I don't need a mic in most rooms. But if you don't have a wireless mic, don't give me a handheld one. You know, it's going to be a waste. You just brought up another thing, which could because we're talking about risk being all kinds of different things. And then we'll move on to assessment is, you know, my voice definitely carries could carry too and i had fallen into especially in a small room oh i don't need the mic always when it was turning into a hassle till i had one of my friends who was i don't know if he was in his 50s when he said this to me the first time and his ambient hearing is going so he could not you know he cannot hear the voice because of everything else. You know, it's too many years about being around music and speakers and, and things like that. And what I'm realizing is more and more, and they don't need to be 60, 70, 80 years old, that there are younger people who are having trouble hearing. And so if you say, oh, that's okay, my voice carries, it may not carry to them. So I right. never turn down a mic anymore, even if I, because I don't know who's in the room and I always go mic'd unless there's absolutely a reason that it can't be or, or something like that. Uh, yep. I mean, if there's 15 people and we're sitting in a you know room the size of the studio or something, that's one thing, but any kind of yep. standard meeting room. He really opened my eyes and when he said that, because again, hadn't thought of it because yep. 
I'm blessed. I don't have trouble with my hearing yet, at least. So, uh, but yeah, all these risks that, you know, and I guess if we were to make a point for listeners is, you know, again, she's got a list in the book of 25 different things with some you would totally expect to be on there. And, you know, we're talking about a lot of the ones you might not think about. And, you know, we started on intellectual property and anyone who sat in a class with me will know that's one of my hot buttons. And Tracy is one of my favorite stories about what happens. Okay, we, you got to tell that story real fast and then we'll go on to assessment. So I'm always preaching you have to make sure you have permission. Everything is owned by someone. You have to make sure you have permission, blah, 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 blah. And, and I'm actually finally writing something about that. Um, but Tracy was in my class about four years ago and uh, shared this story of, so set the, go ahead, go for it. So I volunteer produce for our church on the weekends and we had a guest um, speaker, Ketchy from America's Got Talent. She had come in second place, I think that year, and um, she was our guest speaker. So before she came on, we play a little video clip that just says, you know, sets her up. It was her audition uh, from the show. Hey, and here's Ketchy. Ta-da. Well, we got, we got like three seconds into the thing. No feed. Because we broadcast to four other campuses and online, that they shut us down in a hot minute because we didn't own it. We thought we yeah. just, just could take her little. It's hers, you know, right? She it was her auditions. We're just going to take. Well, this and little. it was commercial. You thought? Yeah. I remember you saying to me, "We thought they'd be glad because we're promoting right. America's Got Talent." Yeah. <laughs> yep. And uh, well, you know, they took us up, took us down like in a second. I couldn't believe that's- it. Uh, along that lines, uh, talking to students, we just, I did a, a student event um, this past week and they wanted to play music. And I said, they were just going to get the, use their Spotify list. I said, you can't do that. Like, what do you mean? I said, we have to, if you want to play music other than a radio, we have to get a license for that. And they're like, wait, what? I'm like, unless you want to talk to the college and see what their music license allows, we cannot, you cannot just plug your phone in. That is illegal. And, yeah. and they're like, well, but what do we do? And I said, I am doing you no favors if I let you break a law that I know is a law. Especially so, in yeah, events, I mean, in an event yeah. class. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I mean, it's, there's just so many that we wouldn't necessarily think of. Yeah. And again, you know, uh, one of the things I talk about when I'm talking about it is also, you know, all the cartoons. I mean, a million years ago, it was always Dilbert and everything like that. Now, you know, and and the problem is, is the internet has both helped and hurt this. It, It hurt it that people go, well, I just got it on the internet. It was free. Why can't I use it? That's been the story I've heard for at least 15 years now from people. Um, but the other thing is, as Tracy shows, is the internet can catch you much faster than yeah. they could before technology was. And, you know, uh, there's tons of stories and we'll eventually do one on, um, you know, intellectual property and all the different things. Photos, there's buildings that are trademarked that you can't use without permission. There's, you know, photos of pictures and movie clips, TV clips, things that are thrown into presentations all the time and should you know you really need to think that out with your contract with your speakers and performers so that's a risk anyway we could do obviously a whole thing on this one (laughs) so let's move on to assessment and what would you like to tell us about assessment so um just a little bit of um back stepping before you get to the assessment okay so in in the book i talk about doing brainstorming which is 
is, as we said, that, that my brain dump and you're going to end up with a lot of risks and you're going to mm-hmm. end up with some silly ones and some repetitions. And so the next step from brainstorming is what I call mind mapping. And that's when you start to take out the, t- you start to make sense of all of these brainstorm lists. Um, and what you want to do is first go through and take out the repetitions. And then you want to start to create categories, like larger categories, um, things like weather or personal injury, or you could do financials. Um, it's a big, broad category. And what you're trying to do then is take that list of brainstormed risks and put them under categories. And ideally, and in fact, you, there will be, some of the risks will go under more than one category. So something like rain could go under weather. It could also go under physical injuries. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then from that, now you've got made some sense out of this, but you also then want to attach it to an element of the event where it would happen. So if you've got weather and you've got rain, you would put parking lot. Right. Mm. So that's what it would have. So that you're starting to make that connection between the risk and where in where in the event that it would happen. So you can start to make some sense out of it, which then leads us into the analysis. And for, because now, now you've got some sense out of it. And just so you know, in her book, she shows how to break it down, you know, doing things table format, doing things in a very visual way with mind mapping, yeah. um, a fishbone. She's got a couple of different ways. So depending on what clicks with you, um, you can draw all or elements from you know, one or more of these to create something that sticks with you and helps you think it out. So if you're not familiar, you know, if everything you do is on an Excel spreadsheet, which I know people who do, I'm sorry, I can't stand Word documents on Excel spreadsheets. Um, But, you know, like I'm looking at what you're saying in terms of, you know, here's my key circle, physical injury, and here's parking lot, public areas, function space, AV wires. So it helps you hone in on, where you have to be conscious of that is that am I interpreting yeah. that correctly? Yes. So you're starting to understand that if it's if it's like trips and falls, where in the event could that happen? Like a broken leg, where in the event could that happen? So mm-hmm. it could happen in the event space. It could happen with one of the displays, right? Mm-hmm. So rain could happen in the parking lot. It could happen. Um, it could end up being a wet floor. So it just it helps you start to really make sense out of if I said, like if one when I was brainstorming, if one of my risks was um, a snowstorm, and it was the event was happening in like May, March or April, and now I want to try to connect it to an element of the event, is it is it really a reasonable thing? So it starts to make you think about which of these identified risks you do need to take the next step and do the assessment on. Yeah. You know, I was just even thinking about slippery floors and I thought, okay, well, I'm into the Southwest where half the meeting rooms seem to open to the outside anyway, but they never get rain. And then I was thinking about how the tiles that are used in so many areas like that, they grab the humidity, maybe not in the Southwest, but I remember being like in Puerto Rico one time and all the even in your room the floors yep. were wet from all the humidity and it was really dangerous actually it really yep. was and of course showers well, is have, one of the big ones they talk about now and if you've got women in heels uh, 
and the floors have even a little bit of it, like even if they're not wet at all yeah right women in heels they could end up going down because i'm clumsy and i do um or great so, or even yep. on um i think tracy you mentioned last time you know talking about women in shoes with heels on grass Mm-hmm. And how that's such an issue. And I remember having to tell people when I back when I was planning weddings, like, please tell your guests, don't wear heels. Not only will they get ruined, somebody's going to get hurt. So, yeah. yeah, well, let's face it, you know. I never wear heels to a wedding. <laughs> <sighs> I mean, we see it, we'll see it in a couple of weeks at graduation. Um, the These young women that are graduating are going to put on a new pair of heels they just got that they can't walk in anyway well, they, that they can't walk in anyway because they've spent four years in like slippers um <laughs> but regardless even if you can like uh, joanne knows i wear heels all the time um and when i go to graduation i do not wear heels because the ground at endicott the graduation takes place outside and even the pavements are not flat <laughs> so I am being outside and then I have to go into the stadium, which is artificial turf. And it also is, even though it's, it's better than grass is, it's still unstable to walk on. Mm -hmm. But every year we see the students, they have to walk a good, it's a good five minute walk from where they get lined up into, they do a procession into the stadium. And every year there's at least three girls that go down because they're wearing heels Either they never have worn them before or they have, and yet the ground is still unstable. So, I mean, things like that, just looking at something like that, women wearing heels, a risk could be women in heels, and the ground is uneven, right? So, just like I said, starting to put together, if you're looking at trips and falls, if you're looking at somebody falling, where could that happen? No, that's a uh, that's a really cool way of thinking of it. So, is it okay to move into assessment now? Yes. Okay. Yes. So <laughs> don't want to jump it here. <laughs> no, no. So for assessment, there's um, I've come across a variety of different ways of doing assessment over the years, but the one that's in the book is called the risk factor table, and it is not my creation. It was a creation with some students in the first time I taught the risk management class at Endicott. Um, and they, they came up with an idea of creating this risk factor table. And what happens is this table um, is, I can't think of how many columns across it is. <laughs> five. But it, so it's five? Yeah, other than the actually listing the risk. Severity, okay. probability, risk factor, strategies, and action plan. Right. So that risk factor table is, the first time you see it is in the assessment chapter. But it from there, you're going to use it throughout. It's a really wonderful, wonderful visual. Um, a nice, concise way to put together every your entire risk management plan so people can see it. So that first column is either the, it's the risk themselves, and you can, list out each risk on its own or you can use the categories that you created in the identification and mind mapping Mm -hmm. um, where you put you would put weather and then underneath it you would list all the different risks and then the next two columns are severity and probability so everything that i read in terms of assessment dealt with that idea of probability and severity you can also use consequence and likelihood 
Um, I just like those terms, consequence or um, severity and probability. I just like those terms better. Um, The severity is the reasonable worst case scenario if the risk manifests. So what's the worst thing, reasonable worst thing that could happen? And And why I'm emphasizing reasonable is because the first time I taught risk management, and gave the students this, ass- this assignment to do, um, several of them came back with the severity is death. The severity is wrong. what? The se- death. Death. <laughs> People are going to die. Um, and, and they're not wrong because anything could lead to death. Mm-hmm. Is it reasonable? And the one that really made me look at it and go, okay, I need to change the way I do this, is a paper cut the severity was death. <laughs> like, oh, that's on me. Because, yes, you could die from a paper Someone cut. could. Is Not it reasonable? <laughs> Is it reasonable? No. <laughs> like, no. Um, so, reasonable worst case scenario. If the risk manifests. And then the probability is the chance of it happening. Mm-hmm. So, I'm going to deal with the probability first. It's the easier one to explain. Um, probability typically is done, I prefer to do it in percentages. So it's, I think, I think I use three, don't I? Yep. Yeah. One, okay. three, three. Mm-hmm. Yes. The students like, the students like me to use four. So I have used four. I prefer three. It's easier math. Um, so what you would do is a probability, you would have probability of one, two, or three. And what you have to do is set up the parameters when you're doing the assessment. So these are, this is outside of the individual risks. So I'm setting up a probability scale. So a probability of one would be zero or less than 25% chance of it happening. Right? And so that's all you would put in there. And a probability of two would be 25 to 50% chance of it happening. Right? And then a probability of three would be 51 to 100% chance. chance. So you can break up the numbers, however, mm-hmm. you could do under 30%, but you're basically breaking it up so that you've got no overlap between the categories. So you wouldn't have um, category one being zero or less than 30%, and then category two would be 30% to 60, and then 60 to 90, because now you've got overlap between mm-hmm. the categories. So you have to go to 61 make to, it clean. to 100. Yes, to make sure that there's a definite in-between. Um, and then for severity, what you want to think about is um, physical re- or physical injury, property damage, and disruption to the event. So that's the, the three areas of severity that you normally think in. Uh, and again, this is outside of individual risks. You're setting up these parameters without thinking about a specific risk. So for a severity of one, a severity of one, it could be um, somebody needs medical attention that can be done by anyone, right? Um, the property damage, depending on the event that you're doing, that's where it's going to change a lot. So if you're doing a, a complex event that has a high budget, your property damage is going to be higher than if you're doing a two-hour event. Um, so let's just say you want to do um, less than $10,000 in property damage. 
Um, and then for interruption to the event, it would be that um, there is there would be a less than five minute delay, right? So that's typically what you're thinking of in terms of the assessment pieces, um, breaking down the categories. And you so that for the severity, you need to think about more than just like the probability you're thinking of how what's the chance of it happening. The severity you're thinking about the reasonable worst case in what would happen. Yes, Tracy. When you're talking about the property damage, would your insurance factor into that at all? Like, would you want to look at how much your insurance covers and put that number somewhere where you could afford if your insurance doesn't kick in yet? Like, I'm talking about a nonprofit organization. We'd want to make sure we were at a point where we could afford to cover that. Do you know what I'm saying? So, yep, I do. That comes into the strategies. That's where the insurance part comes in. What you're trying to do right now is assess the different levels of damage so that you can assess you so that you can figure out what strategy you attach to it. So it's separate again from your insurance um, because insurance, when we talk about strategies, insurance is a transfer strategy. It's a protection strategy. So in, if you are doing this risk management assessment, now you know what kind of insurance you need. Got it. Right. So, in, but you're, you're right. You want to think about that type of thing. Um, Remember at this point, when you're looking at property damage, if you're looking at at it reasonably um, and property damage is potentially going to be $50,000 of damage to something, then maybe you don't want to do that in the event, right? So sure. at this point, we're, we've identified the risks, which is very subjective, um, and now we're going to assess them. So we're, we're adding that um, objective component to it. So that we, and we're adding on and, and we're basically providing um, references and resources to it. So you're, you're going to have to do research in this phase. Um, and that's where at the end, to your point, Joanne, when you were talking about using pictures and stuff from the internet, mm-hmm. when you're doing events and your documentation, you should 100% have references, right? You have to credit where you got stuff from. Mm-hmm. We're going to do that in the assessment piece. So we're going to use things like weather reports. We're going to look at, we can talk to insurance companies. We can look at um, any kind of police reports. Those types of things are, are, we look at other types of events where things have happened to really get a sense of, instead of, again, just pulling it out of my ass, I'm just going to tell you that this is what, no, this is where I got that information, right? Like I'm telling you that this, results in this type of reasonable worst case scenario and it happens this often right so like a hurricane in massachusetts is not as likely as a hurricane in miami Mm -hmm. right so again looking at those types of things to really understand you're never prioritizing but you're understanding the risk at a deeper level yeah, that I can all makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I can and understand. so then once you've set up those two, the severity and probability and a one, two and three. And again, that has to be done before you you do that first. And then you go back and you go risk by risk and you figure out where it falls, both in severity and probability. And because you've done all this research, going through each of those risks is going to be easier to figure out. And you assign a number to it then, a one, two, or a three. 
And I like to use only three numbers because then what you're going to do is come up with your risk factor number. And what you do is if something is a risk uh, severity at three and a probability at three, when you multiply it, it comes to nine. That's math I can do with my hands. So (laughs) I can actually physically count it on my hands. That's why I like to only have three for each of them. Um, And that risk factor number doesn't mean that that risk is more important than anything else. It's again, the higher the risk factor number, the, that's what you, that's what you look at for the strategies first. So it's helping you organize your next step. It's not saying that this is the most important risk. And we hundred percent avoid that being the biggest risk, the most important risk. It's a little risk. We don't use those. If we're writing that down, what we're saying now is we're, take, we're taking um, responsibility. We could say, oh, no, that's not an important risk. And then somebody gets severely hurt from it. And I've documented this saying that, no, it's not important. That puts me in a higher liability. So it's not, this is the risk. This risk has been assessed as okay. this. I see what right? you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, not- I'm, not, I'm never ranking or prioritizing risks. I'm, I'm just going through a process of identifying and assessing them so that I can figure out what to do next with them. Which would be the strategies column you have, which that's Correct. one of the things we're talking about next time, right? No. Yep. Yep. Strategies yep. and evaluation. Yep. But I see yep. this is it. You know, I, I strongly recommend, trust me, I'm not making any money on Linda's book, but I strongly recommend you, you know, buy this I don't know anyone who knows anything about events that risk is not somewhere in their worry box. Yes. You know, um, it, it goes with the territory people. And if you think you don't have any risk factors, I mean, hopefully just some of the, I'm going to say weird and odd ones we've talked about today that probably <laughs> haven't even, you know, crossed your mind. You do need to be, if, if there's anything for you to worry about, you know, I don't care what color tablecloth you have, people. But you need to think about these things, you know, people, property, you know, intangibles, just like what could be the effect? You don't want to be the person that someone goes, well, why didn't they? You know, you don't want to be that person. Um, And as Linda said, no matter even when you are very thorough and very on top of it, things still go wrong and they will still question you on it. So the yes. more more you know, the more prepared you are, the the better the chance of not only things not happening, but you keeping your job and your career is, you know, that's a risk factor too. Yes, yeah. you don't want something to happen so that you end up paying, you, you're working for the rest of your life to pay for somebody else. Yeah. On top of which, <laughs> excuse me, you don't want to live with the, the terrible feeling of did I do everything I could have? Yep. Right? Because things will still, as you said, Joanne, <coughs> excuse me, things will still go wrong. And somebody, it doesn't matter how diligent you are and how cautious you are, people could still get hurt. And at least having gone through a risk management process, it offers you some comfort that you know you did, you know what you did, and you yeah. know what steps you took. And so you may still feel terrible that someone got hurt, but at least you know what you did, and that can give you some comfort. Right. You created the best environment you could. Correct. 
for someone not to. And again, we've talked right. about there's, you know, it goes back to your people are stupid. You yep. know, that there are people who will, you know, walk around the sign, cross the rope, walk across the cords, stand on the tables, you know, um, all those things. But, you know, you did what you could, you know, yep. um, and uh, it, it's just the way it works. Anything else yeah. on assessment you want to add before we wrap up? Um, the other part that I, I mentioned in the assessment is this idea of a Delphi panel. Um, it's a, it's a fancy ass academic word for a panel of experts. Okay. Um, and this idea of Delphi panel is, I don't, did I, I can't, excuse me for not knowing what's in my own stupid book, um, or not stupid book. But uh, you didn't read it yesterday. So yeah, I no. didn't read it yesterday. Um, we barely so remember what we said, much less what we wrote. So. Right? Sometimes I have a hard time remembering what I did in the morning, um, especially before coffee. Uh, mm -hmm. But there's an idea of something that I, I encourage people to use. It's called this Delphi panel, and it's a panel of experts. And so this again, again comes back, and I don't get any money for, for promoting associations, but I am a massive supporter of associations. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the other reasons that associations become important and those relationships become important is for this Delphi panel. That what you would do is reach out to people, experts in the field, um, so other event professionals, and you would have them look at what you did, right? And so that they could then say, not sure that this is really the right assessment or what about, so it's a new set of eyes on it. Mm -hmm. And what you want to do is have this panel of people from different sectors of the industry and different levels of experience and education. So you get this more diverse field of eyes on what you're doing, um, which also offers you protection because if something happens and you end up in a court of law, that panel of your that jury of your peers is not your peers because they are not event professionals mm -hmm. and they don't understand why you did what you did. If you've got documentation where you have support from your industry peers, that offers more weight to what you did. Makes sense. Makes yeah. total sense. Yeah, I like that. And you're right, because we're also building off of all of our own experiences. Right. You know, Tracy losing everything in the flood and, you know, whatever, you know, I think about things to do with the festival ballooning I worked with and, you know, all the cars stuck in the mud. Um, you know, just, you know, yeah, there's a, we all have had our own little or big experiences that go, yes. yeah, you know, this is really reminding me of this and you might want to think this out differently. Um, yeah. because yeah, I kind of had something happen like that. So yeah, yeah I like that. I, again, going to industry, just to, to association meetings, one of my favorite things is I'm standing with, in a room of people who understand what I did as an event professional, yep. what I am teaching as a professor and the stories you hear are wonderful. The worst you know, stories. We, mm -hmm. Yeah. We talked about this a little bit last time where we don't do this only for the money. We do it because people are stupid, but they're also hilarious. Mm -hmm. right? Um, and so we do it for that. 
Um, so being in these rooms and so hearing some of the stories that I've heard from other event professionals, mm-hmm. it, it really helps me. Like this is a lifelong journey for me. I have no doubt on risk management. I'm never going to stop looking at it um, because it's just fascinating to me. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I really think, yeah, we, well, and it's adult learning principle. We all, you know, we love to be with people who understand what we do. And, you know, your your family doesn't tend to get as excited about things, the same things as, as we do. Um, that is for sure. And, you know, they, from how the buffet table was set up to the, you know, whatever that, you know, gets us off. But I think, yeah, I think hearing the stories and I want to say I was at one meeting one time where they almost did like stand up where everyone got up and, and told their, you know, biggest war tale. And yeah. it was funny, alarming, but you learned from it because thank God you haven't done every mistake yet or had it happen to you. So if you listen to everyone else's, it, it shortens that chance of it happening by a lot. So yeah. it, it's kind of like the panel you were talking about, like get yeah. enough information from your peers and, and yeah. It will do that. My uh, my sons, to your point, my sons grew up with me being an event planner. And we would go on holiday and we'd get somewhere and I would be doing a risk assessment in the space and I'd be doing site inspection. And, and the two of them would be like, Mom, could you please just stop? I know. I, I will. I, I know. I know how they feel. I live with a meeting planner. I mean, she I takes just, pictures I just have of to do it. chandelier. She I'm takes done. pictures of food displays. She takes pictures of carpeting. It's uh, everywhere we go. Oh, that's that yep. would make a great event space. I would do this and that, and I put some lights I over mean, here. Oh. All I wanted to know about the Super Bowl was how they did the ringing. Right? <laughs> That's why I love, that's why I follow that lighting, the lighting, I forget who it is, who shows all the behind the scenes for a lot of the staging for the big events, the Oscars, and because that's, yeah, it's interesting. I really don't understand part of it, but it's close enough that I get it. And yeah, yeah. we look at everything that way. Um, yep. Yeah. We're terrible guests at events, though. Really terrible we're, guests. We're, we're the best and worst. Yes. Right? right. Because we're, we understand things that these things happen, right? Like this goes wrong, this happens. We yeah. get that. But where where we're the worst is that should never have happened. <laughs> for well, me, we're... the for me the worst is when I'm at when I'm at any kind of meal function and my water glass is empty. Well, my very first MPI WEC, no, not yep, my very first. So this was back when final night was still formal. Like you went in formal mm-hmm. clothes and everything. And I was all like because I was playing relatively small events. I wasn't doing... Con- this was, like, overwhelming to me that I'm in this room with, like, 3,500 professionals from around the world and Baltimore and the convention center. We're all dressed up, and we sit down, and the first thing someone does is pick up the tablecloth and feel it and go, I can't believe they used these linens. And I thought, <laughs> oh, this is going to be a really interesting night. <laughs> you know, like, here we go. <laughs> Um, and it stuck with me I mean that was many many years ago but I thought oh because I never would have said something like that but they were like full on like really you know Um, so (laughs) uh, anyway Kelly I mean we were talking before we started that my fully grown adult sons when we go anywhere they're never worried because they know I know how to get out the first thing I do anywhere is look at 
look for exits. And I, I made my students feel both comfortable and concerned a little bit the other day. We were talking about the emergency plan at Endicott College and what to do, mm-hmm. right? It, and I'm not teaching risk this semester, but the students wanted to talk about, mm-hmm. you know, how do we evacuate? What do we do? And I said to them, don't worry, I got gotcha. you. And they're like, well, but there's only one door in here. And the door in the, in the classroom that I teach in opens out. So there's no way for me to actually secure this door other than the crazy little, like, push-in lock on it. So they're like, well, you know, what would we do if we couldn't get out of the room? So I laid out what we would do. And some of them were looking at me with feeling very comfortable and others were feeling a little concerned. And somebody actually said to me, why, like, why do you do that? And I said, I always know how to keep myself safe. Like, yeah, it's one of the most important things to me is to to feel safe. If I don't feel safe, I don't stay somewhere. Yeah. And and there's so many times you just have to be aware. And unfortunately, a lot of us don't really think about a lot of them until something happens. Airplanes, trains, yeah. uh, shuttle buses, you know, uh, hotel rooms. Um, Yeah, you have to think about it all. So I'm going to check in with Kelly, who's relatively new to the industry and say, so what like screamed out at you in this conversation? (laughs) I don't even know. It sounds like a very, I don't know, it's a very stressful topic for me, (laughs) just because I don't have a lot of experience. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I have to think of like everything. And I don't know. I was also just thinking, how long does this usually take people to kind of go through the whole process is it like do you do it at the beginning or throughout the whole time that you're planning an event i don't know if there's so even that is, you know, that is a great great question um so the first time you do a risk management plan is going to take you the longest uh, and it should so i typically will tell people the first time you do one will take around six months And what I recommend is to find an event that you have done before. And that's what you're going to create the risk management plan for. And find an event that the most complex event that you've done previously. So the most moving parts. And create, as an afterthought, the risk management plan for that. While you're doing that and working on your seven other events that you're doing, you're going to apply some of that to it. So... The first risk management plan that you create is going to be your template for going forward. You don't have to do a brand new one every time. You can borrow from others. You just need to make sure that your risk management plan, every event you have, your risk management plan is customized to that event. So, And the other part of your question is risk management is not something that you do at the beginning and then you're done. You do it all the way through. So... As you're going through, if you look at my book, there's arrows that go back and forth between the process. So your in, your personal risk perception influences your identification, which influences your assessment. And as you're going through the assessment, you may be going through the assessment and go, oh, I didn't think of. And so then you're going to loop back to the identification and add listed there. Um, mm-hmm. And then as you go through the whole process, how it plays out is going to then affect the beginning again. So if you did a risk management process and there was something that you were nervous of or very concerned about as you're going through it and you managed to plan and it happened, but you dealt with it, the next time you're faced with that risk, you're not going to be as scared of it. 
So, like you said, you don't have a lot of experience. You've been doing, I have no doubt, you've been doing risk management in your head. I know, I mean, to Joanne's point, the only people that don't, the only people that don't think about risk management are the people that I call pretenders. Those are the people that plan their brother's sister's girlfriend's cousin's baby shower, right? And now they're a planner and they're not, (laughs) like they're not. But people like yourself who are new to the industry, it's not like you're not thinking about it. Typically what happens when someone's new to the industry is they're focused on the physical risks and that's the right place to be focused because things can be replaced, people cannot, right? So I have no doubt that you're already doing it. The difference is you haven't written it down. And that's the the impetus behind my book was I wanted to create something that makes it easier for people to document it. Because that's, as event professionals, we suck at documentation. Like, we suck at it. Unless it's a post-it note. (laughs) Right. Which gets stuck in their binder. Uh, Right. (laughs) Or puts all over your wall. Or both. (laughs) They get moved at the Uh, event into your binder. (laughs) Yeah. So it's it's a never-ending process. It's... And it can be scary when you first approach it. And I think a lot of that fear comes from a, I don't even know where to start. Yeah. Right. right. And mm-hmm. again, that's why I wrote the book is it because when I started looking at it back after September 11th, it was like, I, I don't even know what to do. And when I started looking into all of the different types of risks that could happen, now I'm scaring myself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And an when I started to document it and, and write it all down, then it was like, okay, I'm sure there's stuff that I'm missing. Like, I know there's stuff I'm missing. But I've got stuff written down, and I can now adapt it. Thank I'm you. Yeah, junkie my, go ahead. Oh, no. You, I was finished. You can go ahead. <laughs> well, it just, I, I, I had to put it down and come back to it because it, there's so much that's overwhelming about it that it was just too much to, to keep going. It, it took me a long time. I mean, it took months is probably short because when you get down these rabbit trails yeah. of what's at risk it's like okay is that really a risk or now am i just c- crossing myself because i've gone this way and that way and yes. I, it's too far now like it's death it's no yes. yeah. death. the paper cut is death yes, right. yes. yes. the paper cut is yeah. death. Yeah. i've gone there <laughs> yes. yeah you have the grim reaper you need to get a side Right. Well, and so, yeah, it, it's so easy to do that. Like, it's so easy to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just have to figure out it. It's like, okay, keeping for me, keeping in mind reasonable. That's why when you do the assessment, you lay out the, the parameters before you look at the identified risk. And it's like, here are the parameters. And then when I'm starting to apply it to the identified risk, and I think of something else, it's like, nope. That is covered in this, right? So because you can break it down into too much, too. Right. Whereas the overall umbrella covers right. everything underneath it, so you don't right. have to do something for every single thing. It's these all fall together, like you said, like right. falls and and yes. things like that. So yes, and when you've broken down the parameters, then and you're starting to look through your identified list, it's like, oh, you know what? I can put these together. Yeah. Or it starts to make things less scary. So something like terrorism, because um, there are events where it's it's a reasonable risk to identify, yeah. like the marathon, yeah. right? 
a marathon, it's it's a reasonable risk to identify. Yep. It is a high consequence. What's the probability? The probability is low, right? And you know it's low when you do the research on the event because you find out all of the things that they have in place. And I have a friend who has worked for the marathon for several years. Um, and, and he also works on the 4th of July. Um, mm. the, Esplanade, uh, the, the pops. Yes. And the stuff that he has told me, and, and again, when you're working on one of those larger events that is um, usually funded by a government, there are protocols that are put in place for you. So something like terrorism, yeah, I have to identify it, but it's already done for me, right? A smaller event, like the student event that I did this weekend, this past week, terrorism is not a risk. Like it's, it's not, right? I could identify it as a risk, but it's, it's just not reasonable. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, uh, hopefully, you know, well, wait, Steve. Well, I have a question and this might be a segue into part three. Okay. Because we do might, need to wrap this one it up. It might fall people. under strategies, but suppose you do your identification and your assessment, you take it upstairs to the Oak paneled executive floor and they go, we don't care. Uh, you know, so what? Uh, I guess then what do you do? And, and if this is, Strategies. strategy we'll talk about next time you don't even have to address it uh, well no so are you talking about taking it to like the non-event people yeah the client yeah yeah or legal or whatever yeah so <clears throat> again this comes back to um when you're doing events and you're doing events for for non-event people mm-hmm. part of your job is to educate them yep So doing all of this research, when you take it, when you finish the whole thing, so you would have done the strategies and um, the action plans as well, when you take that to the non-event people or to the client, you have the documentation to back it up. Um, And if a client is still like, nope, this is ridiculous, we're not doing it, then you are now in a position as to, do I stay doing this event? Mm. Right? Okay. Um, because if they're like, no, we're not spending the money on this. It's like, no, you, like, do you see? I did the research. The chance of this happening, like, you need to spend the money on this. No, we're not going to. You know what? I'm sorry. I can't work with you. Okay. Yeah. Right. Uh, I I think I told the story in the first part about my friend who was having the meeting in Brazil, and she finally got to the point that she was going to quit her job because the it was just weighing too heavy on her of the chances yeah. of someone getting sick or, or being killed yep. from the, the multiple situations that were going on. That's not a yep. knock on Brazil. It was just particular situations at the time. Right. So um, anyway. Yeah. And I mean, the, what you've got with this documentation is, is you've got proof that you did your due diligence. You've now stepped away from it. If the client chooses to do it and, and something goes wrong, they are in big trouble. Well, and one of the things I always tell the, you know, when I talk about this kind of thing um especially usually it comes up ironically in the copyright thing is whenever you're in a situation make sure you've got something in writing also correspondence like a letter or email showing that you did notify them that you have made it clear that they have made the decision basically you're covering your ass you know that i took it to them i explained all this to them they declined 
there was nothing I could do or well, yeah, um, but get it in writing, whether it's email yeah. or, or something. Um, meeting planners can certainly, you know, be pinned on and, and excommunicated out of a company. So yes, agree. Anyway. Okay. We are going to wrap up on this section then. Um, uh, Linda, thank you again. And uh, the next one we will talk about, um, strategies and evaluations and this actually the stuff we're talking about um one of the next ones we're going to be recording is about outdoor activities and you know our guest is someone who's certified in leading a bunch of those and I, she just nice. sent an email today so i can't go but wait to go back and read this and she's the kind who it'll be interesting it'll tie very much in with this and then tracy just wrote a book on volunteers so i i already knew that we wanted to do a session on volunteers so this all ties on and i'm working on some projects on uh copyright and trademarks and everything like that Yay. so this is all like it, it it invades everything, people. And again, not to make you scared, but you have to be aware. And I think um, that's one of the big things to know is no matter what part of the meeting, pretty much there's some odd thing. And like she said, run it by your peers, run it by other people that know. But anyway, thank you, Linda, once again. Thank you. Um, Tracy, thank you for you. being on and, and representing the, the planner community also. Um, Cal, thanks so much as always for being there. And I'm so glad you jumped in there. That's awesome. Um, uh, oh yeah. And I've got the one in the studio, Steve, the great, who's going, you know, what about me? What about me? So Steve also, and, um, thank you so much. Uh, I hope you always would love feedback on, um, what you learned, what you got out of things. Please email me, text me, uh, the information is on the post and uh, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.